I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? <laughs> Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Michael Patton, Theology Unplugged. That's the name of the show. We are unplugged. Sam, Tim, it's uh, good to have you guys joining us here in studio at the Credo House uh, for this se- uh, session of the broadcast. Uh, I don't know. Do we have any anything special we need to talk about before we jump right back into our our discussion? I don't think so. It's not too late to join our school of theology. We're about a week into it, and you can still be a part of it and catch up on the classes and everything. Uh, it'll be a crash course in Christianity that uh, that will be very rich for your soul and for your walk with the Lord. All right, good. Well, folks, we're uh, talking about um, Calvinism here, uh, and I know that uh, some of you guys have lots. Lots of questions. Have uh, we'll wish you were here in studio with us so that you could raise your hand and talk about it with us. But we do have an email that you can send your questions to at theologyunplugged at reclaimingthemind.org. So if you want, send your questions there about this broadcast, and Sam, me, and Tim will try to get to those at the end of this series. Uh, theology unplugged at reclaimingthemind.org. And at any time, too, you can always just go to our website, reclaimingthemind.org, and hit contact us and type in there as well, and we'll get it to you. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about Calvinism, folks. We've uh, spent the last two sessions trying to introduce this subject, as we talked about during the first session, trying to teach you the basics of what it's all about. And uh, before we get into some of the more particulars, but, but we're keeping this. I hope at a level to where those of you who have never been introduced to this subject and always scratched your head and always wondered what it meant, or those of you commonly who have been introduced to this but introduced in a way that um, that may be misrepresentative of this will be able to have a more accurate understanding. And, folks, it's an invitation. It is something that each one of us here in studio believe. Uh, we are all three Calvinists. We are all three, not only Calvinist by a uh, submission of the will, but also because it's a, we, we all believe it's a wonderful doctrine that changes and enriches your understanding of God and of salvation and your passions. We have talked last week about the main points of Calvinism. We introduced it with this idea of tulip, which is a very common way of understanding Calvinism that is out there, tulip the flower, and that is an acronym uh, the T standing for total depravity, the U standing for unconditional election, the L standing for limited atonement, uh, the I standing for irresistible grace, and the L or the P standing for perseverance of the saints. As we said last time, we wouldn't necessarily choose those whenever we're explaining it, but it is an acronym, and we all kind of like acronyms to be able to get our arms around this. But as we work through each one of these individually, hopefully we'll be able to understand a, a, get a better understanding than just the acronym will provide. Today, we're going to jump right in and talk about total depravity. And when we talk about total depravity, I think it's the best starting point for us simply because a lot of, a lot of what will follow logically hinges upon this idea of total depravity. Uh, um, the, this idea that men are completely and totally depraved. That's the way we might put it. But Sam, as you talked about last time, it, it may not be the best way to put it. 
because something different comes to mind whenever you think of total depravity. What is total depravity? Well, total depravity is the understanding that uh, all human beings born into this life are spiritually dead in the sense that they find nothing in God or in Christ that is appealing. They are um, inclined um, to wickedness. Their hearts are uh, rebellious toward God. There is a spiritual darkness that is pervasive. Uh, every aspect or feature of, their, of, of our constitution, whether we're talking about how we think, how we feel, um, the exercise of our wills, um, our soul, our spirit, all is, as Paul said in Ephesians 2.1, we are dead in trespasses and sins. And we walk according to the wicked and evil inclinations of our fallen and depraved hearts. Um, the problem, as we've already indicated with the word total, is that uh, we, we look across the, uh, the face of the earth, even in our own experience with people, and we see individuals who are not Christians. In fact, some who may be profoundly hostile toward the gospel, uh, who are uh, extremely uh, resistant to anything having to do with the local church, and yet they do good things. They pay their taxes. They serve the poor. Uh, they are sacrificial in their giving. Um, um, they can be very kind and compassionate to those in need. And so we say, how can you refer to those kinds of people as being totally depraved? They're obviously not as bad as they potentially could be. And so the word total depravity has been sometimes misunderstood. But what we're trying to express by that is the notion that no individual, by virtue of his own strength or the own, his own inclination of heart, will ever positively respond to the gospel or to the revelation of God in creation or in Scripture, that there is a hard-hearted resistance to the truth. It's what we read, for example, in Romans 3, where Paul says, that um, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. That's Romans 3, uh, verses 10, and, uh, 10 through 12. So uh, the reason why we are not as bad as we possibly could be is because God in his mercy and what theologians call common grace restrains uh, the... Uh, full expression of our depraved souls. Uh, he exerts a restraining influence on us so that we um, do not act out uh, in fully, fully what is true in our nature. And he also grants positive gifts. That's why uh, you, you find people who are not Christian doing remarkable things in terms of music and the arts and um, the... Uh, the academic disciplines and uh, uh, just uh, ministry to the needy. So don't want people to misunderstand. We're not saying that every human being is as bad as he or she can be. We're not saying that by total depravity we mean that every person will commit every sin of which they are capable. What we do mean is that in themselves, apart from the work of God's grace, they neither will nor can 
um, respond positively to the gospel of Jesus. So total depravity is speaking specifically towards their salvation, towards their spiritual condition in many ways, because we'd say they're made in the image of God as well, that there is a lot of inherent uh, just great things about them. I know Michael and I, when we teach a boot camp and discipleship program, use the imagery of a life jacket many times with, with Jesus standing there with a the life jacket, and where some might say, okay, we just need to teach you how to use this life jacket, then when you really need it, you'll know to, to strap on the life jacket and use it. Or when you're drowning, someone can throw you a life jacket, and you can grab a hold of it and, and, and then paddle your way to the shore. But what total depravity is saying is that you are floating dead in the water. And even if someone throws a life jacket at you, you're dead. You can't grab that life jacket and put it on. There's no use even giving you any instructions of how to put it on because you're floating in the water and you are so totally depraved that you can't do anything to save yourself from from this pool of death. Yeah, and total depravity, so I'm glad you brought up that point, does not mean that, that people aren't all created in the image of God and have mm-hmm. dignity as uh, the handiwork of our Creator. Mm-hmm. Um, although the image of God has been defaced and marred, all mankind, both Christian and non-Christian, are still uh, image bearers. They still reflect the imprint of their creator. And because of that, have a value that God has granted them by virtue of creation. But um, as you said, th- this notion of being spiritually dead means that they are insensible to the beauty of Christ. Mm-hmm. They are resistant to the overtures of the gospel. They find nothing in the claims of Jesus appealing and they will persist in that unless they are overtaken by the irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit. Mm. We're talking about you. You brought up the point of being dead. You brought up the point of not meaning that we can't do anything that is good in and of itself, like loving children or, or giving your life up for somebody else that is, you know, in, in war or something like that. Many people who are unredeemed do that, mm-hmm. do those things. They do love their children. They they do go fight in service and and give their lives up. What we're saying is the deadness has to do with our spiritual condition with regards to God. We are born, stillborn. We are born dead. This total depravity has to do with whenever, whenever we have inherited, we have inherited a mortality that has been passed on ever since the first death. And whenever, whenever Adam and Eve were in the garden, he says, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, uh, has much to do with the spiritual condition that humanity inherited. That they, whenever he ate of that, the life between him and God, the relationship between him and God was severed in such that our nature, human nature, humanity's nature, and everything that Adam passed on, uh, every every uh, every one of his uh, offspring would be born dead with regards to our relationship with God and have an inability to restore that relationship because that ability is dead. I think a good way to explain it these days is like a, com- a computer virus. You know, a computer virus can be passed on from one uh, computer to the next, and it can de habilitate certain aspects, vital aspects of that computer, but also the computer can also uh, still run in other ways. You know, I had a computer virus not very long ago that every time I opened up this one program, for some reason it would just shut it down. The moment I opened it up, shut right back down. And that's the only thing that really affected was this certain program. 
And I, that, that's what it comes to when we're talking about our relationship with God. You can't open it up. It is unnatural. We have the inability since the sin in the garden to open up our relationship with God. We don't want to. We don't care for God. We are, as the scriptures would say, we are at enmity with him, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very strong word. We are, we are enemies we with are him. We are enemies. We, we hate him. Uh, we, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, and as Martin Luther would put it, in bondage. Now, let's talk about that a little bit. What does it mean to be in bondage? Because I think most people, whenever they hear that, the bondage of the will, we would think, well, our will is in bondage to Satan. That must be it, right? Actually, no. Our wills are in bondage to our nature. Uh, our nature, our, the orientation of our soul, as you've just expressed it, I think, very well, is uh, animosity toward God, hatred toward God, a love for wickedness, um, a, a, a complete inability to find anything appealing or beautiful in Christ or the gospel. And our wills are simply an expression or an extension of our nature. Um, people often ask me, do you believe in freedom of the will? And I say, well, the will is free to do whatever the heart desires. The will is free to do whatever the heart desires. What your heart desires, you can act upon it. The problem is that um, for those who have not been born again, who are still dead in trespasses and sins, their hearts desire only Rebellion against God. Their hearts desire only unbelief. They do not desire the things of God, and therefore their wills are, as it were, in bondage to that orientation of their souls or their spirits. And what the new birth does is there is this new life. There is this bringing to life what was formerly dead and giving us a new heart that loves God, that sees the light, that finds joy and pleasure in who Christ is, and thus our wills are liberated or freed up to um, embrace him in faith and in repentance. And that's what it's so wonderful we talk about being born again. You know, what, what, a, what a wonderful thing. You, you can't really understand what it means for the new birth or being born again or being born from above unless we understand this idea of total depravity. Remember whenever Christ was talking to Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3 and, and he was telling him about, you know, being born again and Nicodemus is saying, I don't get it. This is not making any sense. How can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus rebukes him uh, for his lack of understanding, and he says, "You know, you're the teacher of all of Israel, and you don't get this." Mm. And and that's really caused a lot of scholars to scratch their head and say, "Wait a minute, Jesus, you're being a little bit hard on Nicodemus because it's not really mentioned in the Old Testament anywhere, at least explicitly, this idea of being born again." But I think theologically it is, mm. because if you're dead, if the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that uh, the, all, all the rest of the Old Testament plays out this spiritual death, this inability to come to God. Romans, uh, Genesis chapter 6, look at them. They're all evil. Every intention of their heart is only evil continually. Dead, depraved, dead in their trespasses and sins, need to be born again. Now, I think that's what Jesus is kind of referring to here is you've got to understand the entirety of the Old Testament demonstrates the death that that ensued in the garden, and we must be born again in order to have that program, if you will, and the computer uh, working again. 
the program just doesn't work. It's broken. It's, it's got a virus. We inherited that virus from our parents and, and from Adam, and it has been there ever since. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is, is the place that I most often turn to whenever I'm dealing with this. I think, for me, in a very definitive way and what it means. But uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says in verse uh, 14, chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I think that's a good microcosm of what total depravity is. You're in a natural man. You're in a natural state. You have yet to be born again. You are existing in your identification with Adam, which is one of death towards God. And so, therefore, you are a natural man. That natural man has a component within him that is that is uh, that that God component that is dead, that is ineffective. It can't turn on. It is a virus it, it, in your natural condition. There's no way you can do anything spiritual. You can't turn to God. You're in rebellion against Him naturally. And the only thing that we have to hope for is nothing in ourselves. And, and if I could just take off on your uh, computer analogy here. Uh, we don't want people to misunderstand. You, the hardware is still in place. In other words, to say when we say somebody's totally depraved, that doesn't mean that they don't have a mind. Doesn't mean that they can't reason. Doesn't mean that they don't have the power to uh, deduce logically and draw conclusions. Doesn't mean that they don't have the psychological uh, makeup that we associate with a with a rational soul. Um, it doesn't mean that they lack. Uh, a will. It's not so. Saying that the, the humans are totally depraved doesn't mean that they lack a particular faculty uh, of mind or soul or will. It's that the moral orientation of our natures and our hearts is to use our faculties to justify saying no to God and to hating God and to finding nothing in Him that is appealing. So we're not saying that people are somehow intellectually crippled. Uh, that's not the case. It's that they're morally flawed, and there's an important distinction there. And it is, and, and it's not as if, I mean, there's a lot of people out there, and there may be even some of you who are listening to this, and you say, well, listen, I've never really accepted Christianity, but, but I, I, I'm not an enemy of God. I love God. You know, I pray to him every night. I think about him all the time, and, you know, I, I, um, I understand that he created everything and that uh, I wouldn't have anything except for through him. But when we're talking about those type of uh, situations, we're not saying that everybody explicitly understands their rebellion against God. But what we're saying is that total depravity means that God, as he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ, we have an inability to accept that, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not that it's not a lot of people out there are saying, well, I do believe in God, but I, I don't I'm not a Christian. You, you see what I'm saying? Sure. We're at enmity. We're an enemy of God as he has revealed himself through the scriptures. Because we Jesus know Christ. even the, the demons believe in God. 
And so we're not talking about believing God in that way, but we're talking in the salvation sense of believing in Christ as Savior. That we have that we're, we're in a we have an inability to do that yeah. Yeah. To, to the point that when we get to heaven, too, no one's going to say, "Well, you know, I just I grabbed that life jacket and I put it on. I just decided that I should probably follow Christ because I was getting well along in age, and and I just figured that that was probably the right thing to do right now was just to start trusting Christ so I could get to heaven." And total depravity would say, "We can't." do that there there isn't that part that just says well i just decided one day that i should i should become a christian and become born again yeah there there are many non-christians who believe in god they believe in a supreme being they are not atheists they believe there is some superior power that accounts for the existence of the universe in their own lives and may even pray to them they may even pray to them but but that concept of believing in God is not what the New Testament has in mind when it refers to a born-again Christian believing in God. Um, because oftentimes what people mean when they say they believe in God is they believe in the benefits uh, that they hope that this God will give them. That, uh, the, But in terms of embracing what the God of the Bible has revealed, namely uh, the reality of our sinfulness, the necessity of repentance, um, the the incarnation and deity of Christ, the necessity of His sinless life, His substitutionary death on our on our behalf. That the only way we can be in fellowship with this God is if we acknowledge um, how we are deserving of His eternal wrath, and that Christ has absorbed and satisfied that in Himself on the cross. If you press them on those points, suddenly their so-called belief in God will take on an entirely different shape. Because it will it will make its way around the particulars that Christianity is and demands. And you can see how this, how really embracing total depravity really deepens our worship of Christ and our our passion for Christ. Because in that we are seeing, as we are standing there, uh, wherever we are in life, whatever the day may be, we just see that because of what Christ has done in reversing that total depravity, that and something that I did not do, but only He could do in awakening my heart and changing me and, and making me a, a new creature, a born again believer that that really deepens my passion and my worship of him for because he has done so much with a totally depraved person and i would even go so far and this is another controversial point i would say that all human beings believe in the existence of god i think romans 1 makes that very clear where paul says that for what can be known about god is plain to them because god has shown it to them his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So uh, the idea of a, an honest atheist is one that I would question. I think people say they don't believe in God, but I think in the depths of their heart, in their conscience, God has made himself known sufficiently so that Paul says they are without excuse. And they're, no. they're forcing, pushing against this knowledge. Exactly. He says they suppress this truth in unrighteousness, and then he even goes on to say, for although they knew God, they know him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew him in the sense of they were aware of his existence. They were aware of his divine nature and eternal power. They don't know him in the way that a Christian does, in intimacy and love and fellowship and joy. But... Um, 
I think it's even, it, it may strike people as odd. You know, we're saying on the one hand, all humans are totally depraved, and yet I'm also saying all humans know there is a God. And yet I think that's what the Bible says. And they know that there is a God, and they hate him. Hmm. It's not that they don't know that he's there. They know that he's there, and they despise him. And they will not give thanks. They will not bow the knee in obedience and humble submission and repentance to him and end up creating all sorts of idols. And, and alternative, him. alternative deities. I mean, we may like a little bit of what we see of God in the Bible, but, you know, we don't like this whole idea that he's the only way or that, that Jesus Christ died a bloody death on the cross. And we're going to change these things around because we hate the idea of the gospel. That's total depravity. We are at enmity with the gospel. And just because you accept certain components of it and twist the other ones around doesn't mean that, that you, you have not expressed your total depravity. That's part of it. We don't want God to be who he is as he has revealed himself. We want him to be as he might be if we make him and tweak him and change him. And that's the issue of total depravity because it's so confusing sometimes whenever we do have so many people that do seem to sincerely be striving after a God. But the point of total depravity is you are not striving after the true God. You are not tri- you, you are in rebellion against God as he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. And they're even striving after a form of morality. Hmm. Some of the nicest, most civil people you know are not Christians. But it's not – it's a morality of their own making in which they take pride. Uh, and it's not a morality that is consistent with uh, – the demands of the righteousness of God set forth in Scripture. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Then how can you who are accustomed to do, doing evil do good? And I think that that is the key thing when we're talking about total depravity here is that we are in a we're in a helpless condition. We 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 are people who are born and infected a certain way, and we have no ability to change ourselves, no ability within ourselves. We are the natural man, and the natural man cannot, does not, accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness. So we're leaving you folks today in a pretty bad situation. Next week, we're going to come back and talk about the next step that has to take place, not just logically, but biblically as well. We will work through this. But as you can see, the, uh, the importance of total depravity here. Uh, for Tim, for Sam, cutting off uh, pretty quick here. I know we're all excited about this, but we've got to uh, stop the broadcast sometime. Guys, uh, questions. Again, Theology Unplugged at ReclaimTheMind.org. May God bless you. Have a great day. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner, And for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.